So I want to start with a warning. I, when I wrote this, I didn't know where the sharing was going to go. Um, at the time of putting this together, and I wrote everything out, I had about four floaty concepts running around in parallel. Woolly words like deconstruction, like desert, like doubt, and faith. Next slide, Jeff. <laughs> I keep telling Jeff that I'm a hot mess and nowhere pulled together enough to give a talk. He ignores me anyway, so thank you for the opportunity. Um, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Chevelle. I'm still quite new to the White House. But before I wandered in and made myself at home here, I grew up in a large fundamentalist sect established by the American Restorationist movement and known worldwide as the Churches of Christ. I was taught that biblical inerrancy and literalism were the bedrock of a true and abiding faith. I was a creationist who didn't know what to do about dinosaurs. I was the golden girl in a paternalistic and highly patriarchal church that focused on our holiness and how everyone else was doing it wrong. Um, and God knows how I love being right. We are so certain. We have tracks and good answers for everything, including the dangers of reading Harry Potter. Um, it was like being part of a large exclusive club that owned the only keys to heaven. And so I was more or less happy for a long time because who doesn't like being part of a special club, even if you only hold bronze tier membership? as a woman. And even though, and even when I wasn't happy, I was moored in a spiritual community and still floated around safely, I thought, in the certainty that I really got Christ. For better or worse, the Churches of Christ remained part of my heritage and family. And for almost four decades across two continents, they were my village. And then, four years ago, Trump got elected into office and really made me think about the American evangelicalism I inherited. I want to stop here and also tell you that when Jeff asked me to speak today, I told him that I'm going to talk about deconstruction because I'm still carefully and spectacularly falling apart. Um, my exact words to him were, I feel a lot like the child of deconstruction in this group, teaching the pros what I have learned. Because I know you guys have journeyed together in multiple ways and at multiple junctures. So if what I'm about to say to you feels like I'm rehashing your distant past, I ask that you just indulge me like a younger sister telling you how caterpillars turn into butterflies. When the earth moves under your feet. What does a biblical inerrantist and literalist do when she finally recognizes that the Protestant Bible she read all her life isn't actually the sum total of God in print? She becomes a church of one, or it feels like it. I heard another deconstructing person describe her current state and mine beautifully. She said, I'm not Christian enough for Christians and too Christian for non-Christians. 
so it's lonely. In a church with all the answers cherry-picked from the Bible, it felt exactly like that. I was on the outs with my village now. I was no longer convinced the Bible is a direct download of God's mind. My understanding of scripture being God-breathed and inspired wildly differed from theirs. Because you see, if you question the authorship and agency of the Bible, you question its authority. And if the Bible is no longer supernatural, and yet strangely also scientific, the reasoning follows that there is nothing in it that can objectively set it apart from the Quran or the Mahabharata or the Nyongi. So what now? We've lost the keys to the gates of absolute truth, people. That simply cannot do. In short, by questioning literalism and the fallibility of the Bible, my village now believes I'm headed to hell because I have declared war on the silent fourth member of the triune God. In acknowledging the human limitations of ancient writers, I have somehow blasphemed God himself. And yes, God is only male in this village. And when God is male, the male is God, but I digress. So where's my village at? What do you do when you lose your village, your lifelong certainties and your cherished truths? You mourn. And if you still believe in hell, you quake even as you question. And when your spiritual tribe is still locked up in the gated compounds of their own making, you journey alone. And this is how I found myself wandering in the wilderness, like a chook with no hen house. So there's nothing but space here. The Bible has lots of stories about faith coming to a reckoning in the quiet and the vast. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. A very geriatric Jacob, I read somewhere he was 97 at the time, wrestled alone with an angel by a river. Jesus traded scripture with Satan in the desert, on the top of the temple, and on the peak of a mountain with a view fit for a king. Why does God meet us in quiet spaces? I came across this little poem by an Australian poet. And he said, God in Australia is a vast blue and pale gold and red brown landscape. And his votaries wear ragged shorts and share his sense of humor. Space, like peace, is one of the great poorly explained spiritual resources of Australia. I came to Canberra because I was attracted to the bushland, but I still needed my mod cons, so win-win. Um, at the time, it was meant to be a temporary tree change. I wanted to soak in the space like one would soak in an intensive, full-body moisturizing treatment at a day spa before I journeyed home to Singapore revitalized, detoxed, and ready to be frantic again. God obviously had other plans for me. Living with space after so long a time of strong collectivism, of living in a village, in each other's pockets, of the sheer lack of privacy, of constant bombardment from social engagements and work and responsibilities and shiny things, it was really hard. I had never been bored before. I was bored in Canberra often and quite friendless. In winter, 
on the sixth month of my brand new marriage, I remember shouting how I hated this tedium, this stupefying dullness, this ennui. I was suffering from too much space, too much empty. Ironically, it had given me cabin fever. Barren places. Space. Canberra is no desert, but to a busy girl it might as well have been. In time, however, I've learned to view the desert as a gift to be embraced rather than to be avoided. I used to be an off-the-chart extrovert. Like, seriously, off-the-chart extrovert. I'm now about a third of the way into introversion. On weekends and many evenings, I crave the mental space to be left completely and utterly alone. Blaise Pascal a French mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and Catholic theologian, claimed that the sole cause of a person's unhappiness was that they didn't know how to stay quietly in their room. And I believe there is, there is no space that God opens up in our lives that God doesn't want to fill. We just have to stop ourselves from beating God to the punch. Jesus, as we all know, pulled himself away. He could have spent his days and nights tirelessly healing physical, emotional, mental, spiritual hurts. He is one of a kind, fully God and fully human, an anomaly, a once in forever. Wouldn't it have been a better use of his time to milk him dry of all his miracles and wisdom before he went to the cross? And yet, Jesus would often withdraw to desolate places to pray. And in staying perfectly still and emptying himself, he made himself a vessel ready to be filled by God and take direction. I am not much of a prayer. I write, I think, I read, I discuss. But my relationship with God has been based so much on my knowing things in order to have faith that when my foundational trust in a literal revelation fell apart, I was suddenly left with a lot of space. The two biggest questions echoing in my void are these. Number one, if all the tangible pillars of my Christian faith were to be torn down, would I still believe in God? And number two, do I believe in God enough to trust in God? Along with the formation of these two questions came a stunning realization. I believe in God, but I don't think I've actually trusted God before. I've only trusted my knowledge of the Bible. Whether you believe God personally ghost wrote the King James Version or not, Christians across the spectrum can agree that the Bible holds a collection of personal and moving encounters with God. About the third of the Psalms that don't make great Sunday scripture reading passages are long and loud laments. Unlike the rest of the uplifting Psalms, there's no praise, no glory to God come what may, no God is great, just spiritual exhaustion, ugly crying, and festering doubt. Here's a paraphrase of Psalm 88 by plain speaking theologian Pete Enns, and I love this one. You can just hear someone actually saying it. Oh Lord, I have been on my knees to you night after night. I am so troubled and in so much agony. I feel like I have one foot in a grave in deep and dark places. I am absolutely without hope, including in you. You really don't seem to care. 
Actually, let me be blunt. You've abandoned me, and so this is all your fault. You're the one who makes me feel like this. You're even the one responsible for my friends looking at me like I'm some sort of freak show. Even so, all night and all day, I'm on my knees praying, still calling to you for some relief. I'm desperate, but you keep on hiding. I'm in absolute pain, and the only friend I have is darkness. Thanks for nothing. Deconstructing one's face is a lot like pulling on a cut thread in the middle of a sweater. It's not just one row that unravels, because it's all connected in the end. One moment I was looking into egalitarianism. The next thing I knew, I was grappling with interpretation bias and wondering where we got the idea that God demanded a written canon in the first place. And right in the midst of that, I'm faced with evidence that for thousands of years, lament and doubt are part and parcel of journeying in faith. Sometimes God uses doubt to blow away the cobwebs. Sometimes we're so comfortable in the castles of our certainty that we need to be shaken out of them so that we're forced to take an Abrahamic journey without a map. Sometimes, to use modern construction parlance, we need a KDR, a knockdown rebuild. Doubting God can feel treasonous because it feels like desertion. And for many people who deconstruct and only deconstruct, that's exactly what happens. They lose their face and walk away. I'm not denying it's a real risk for myself, but God risks. You don't give humans free choice if you have no stomach for risk. And just like Nicodemus came to Jesus under the cover of night, sometimes God will just look at us and go, you know what, darling, start from scratch. You have to be born again. You can't get there from within your current system. Get out of your castle. That's asbestos. By the way, I want you to die constantly. Those who find their lives will lose them. And those who lose their lives because of me will find them. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. I used to think that the event of my conversion in my world, it was baptism by immersion, was the moment I died and was reborn. I used to think that it was the only moment I was supposed to die and be reborn. I don't know how after 40 years, how I missed the whole idea that dying to self is supposed to be a constant daily thing. That the act of surrendering control is a deliberate and everyday depatch mode of Christian living. The circle of life is both about beginnings and endings. Death including the death of old ideas and childish faiths, is necessary for new life. Just as we're told that we need to move from milk to meat, so we're meant to grow up and see God differently. It's a sign of health and development that we do not see the world the same way at age 30 that we did, that, that we did at age 3.
It's the same for face. Ultimately, face is a stubborn choice. Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own insight. As for knowledge, it will come to an end, for we know only in part. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I'm not saying for one moment that God wants us to pack our brains, never question, and just trust blindly. God is very comfortable with our humanity, all of it, the heart, the soul, the mind, strength. The problem is when our faith can only be forged after intellectual certainty. When we decide we can only trust in God when we have worked out all the answers and determined the right and correct theology. That right there is a house of cards waiting to fall because there's always a better argument out there. Besides which, it's a strange sort of hubris to decide that we can unpack all of God within our short lifespans. As Isaiah points out, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right now, I'm choosing to build a deep and loyal trust in God. But part of their journey includes asking disturbing questions about the existence of evil and what that says about God's character. I can't say I have many answers yet, but I'm also thinking about the realities of my puny brain and how much of God is also mystical and way beyond my comprehension abilities. For now, even if every pillar of my Christian faith is hypothetically disproved, I still believe in God. Don't doubt alone. Jesus said to him, If you can believe all things, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I recently came across a blog post from a former professor of philosophy and biblical studies that really sums up the importance of journeying with others through the hills and valleys of our faith. He said, as we take communion tonight, I have a confession to make. He said with, a trem with his voice trembling, sometimes I don't believe. Sometimes I don't believe God exists. Sometimes I'm not so sure about Jesus either. Sometimes I don't know what to do with the Bible. And sometimes I have more questions than answers. That felt good. But that's okay, I said. It's okay because that's why you're here tonight. That's why I show up week after week after week. Because when I can't believe, you believe on my behalf. You believe for me. And when I can believe, I'll bear your unbelief. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. And when not one person better than I or tossed a judgmental glare, that's when Christianity became real to me. That's when the church became my home. A faith community that doesn't embrace our doubt with understanding and trust in God's wisdom isn't interested in growth, but in control. 
I can't emphasize enough how important it is that we continue to extend grace and tenacious love to one another. This is the primary reason I decided to put my roots down with you. Because you have questioned deeply and doubted honestly and knew this was going to happen, and yet you still trust. May we continue to be there for one another. Thanks for listening.